Hey, Parkview. A year ago, my granddaughter Olivia was born out here in California. Ironically, a year ago, my friends Rick and Diane Russo had a granddaughter named Olivia born in Chicago. That's Pastor Chaz and Chelsea's uh, daughter, in case you hadn't figured that out. And uh, so it came up to the one-year birthday, which we're having the one-year birthday party for her, and they're having a one-year birthday for their Olivia, which means they're in Chicago and I'm in California, so I'm like, hey, you're preaching, okay? Um, Rick is uh, one of my uh, one of my best friends, been a mentor, been a mentor to us at the church. Uh, when Externally Focused Church came out, his book uh, really influential to us, helping us figure out how to reach out and life on mission. A lot of stuff that's come from what I've been doing has come from him also. And now the Neighboring Church is, there, is a new book and it's a new project he's working on. And I wanted it to be a part of what we're working on because it's a big, big part of our value as well. So uh, you get to hear from Rick while I'm out here with Olivia. Please welcome my friend Rick Russo. Really, um, it's really good to uh, get to be here with you and uh, love Parkview, love what you do. And Tim and Denise are some of our closest friends. And, uh, and we kind of have this Olivia competition going on now. They were born right about the same time and we're always matching notes up about what they're doing. And, and uh, so we got to be here and celebrate uh, uh, our granddaughter's uh, first birthday. And uh, it's just a privilege to get to be with you. I want to take a moment and pray. We all come in this place this morning. We've got different stuff going on in our lives. Uh, so let's take a moment and uh, pray together. Father, just thank you for the privilege you have of gathering together like this. And, and Lord, you know the needs in our life. You know the stuff we're anxious over right now. Maybe, Father, for us it's something with relationships or it's our health or jobs or some decision we're making. And Father, we come in and um, we don't all have the same story going on uh, today. And so we just ask that you would meet us at, at our point of need, meet us in the middle of our stuff. And uh, Lord, help us to hear from you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God helps those who help themselves. You know, I like that statement. As a pastor, I like the fact that, that people will take some initiative to deal with whatever they've got going on, that we just won't use some excuse, that we just won't sit and wait uh, for something to happen, but we actually get engaged. The problem is God never actually said that. In fact, God's actually wired us to need other people. I love the idea of being self-sufficient. I like to uh, do my own thing, make my own way. I want to drive the car. I want to be the one in charge. And the truth is uh, that sometimes uh, I need to, to recognize how much I need others. God helps those who help themselves. How's that working out for you? Because we tend to get in a lot of messes sometimes, right? And sometimes we fail to recognize how much we really do need other people. For, for example, I am like the least mechanically inclined person you may know. I, I wish I could be better at stuff like that. Like if my car breaks down on the side of the road, uh, if I lift the hood up and there's not like a dead raccoon laying on top of the motor, I have no idea what to do next. I need someone to come and help. If I'm not feeling good, I need to go see a physician. If, if, there, if there's something going on in relationship for us, Diane, I need to talk to somebody who can help us. We are wired to need each other. And God knew that from the very beginning. In fact, Jesus speaks about what would happen if you and I would get better at the two things that Jesus said mattered most. What would happen if we got better at the two things that God cares about the most? And what amounts to... Jesus' very last press conference. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, the crowd's been there, questions are being fired at him, and then he gets asked one last question. Matthew 22, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn over. 
Bound in verse 34, here's what happens. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, so an attorney, so to speak, one who knew the Scriptures, the law, very well, tested him with a question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. They come with a test question for Jesus. And the reason it was a test was because there were 613 commands. And the Pharisees over the centuries had taken those 613 commands and they'd layered on almost 3,000 revisions to that. So there was a lot of legalese in the contract. It was like a cell phone contract. You can never get out of those suckers. It was one of those hard things, right? And, and so they come and they say, which of the commands is the greatest? Because they knew that there would be disagreement, that nobody, Jesus was popular at this time. The crowds were showing up. They were coming to be a part of what he was doing. And they knew that there was absolutely no way that people would agree. And they thought that somehow this would help diminish his popularity. It'd be kind of like here in the city of Chicago. If you were to ask, what's the greatest uh, franchise, sports franchise in the city? Is it the Bulls? Is it the, is it the Blackhawks? It's not the Bears. We know that. But if it was, and now the Cubs this year. I mean, is that not awesome? And, and I get it if you're a Cubs fan. I grew up in upstate New York. I am a diehard Bills fan, which means you die hard every year. It's just a tough... In fact, not long ago, I actually uh, was updating my will and my funeral plans, and I, I sent a request to the Bills organization asking if, the, if six of them could be pallbearers at my funeral. I figured I'd let them let me down one last time, you know. <laughs> kind of. So I am rooting for your Cubs right now, actually. So they come with this test question because there was no agreement, and Jesus cuts right through the signs. In fact, after this, the Scripture tells us, no one dared ask him any more questions. What's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God, Jesus says, with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. In other words, love God with every fiber of your being. Love God with everything you have. Now, that's kind of tough for us, isn't it? Because there are other things that we love too, relationships or jobs, things that, that can be good for us or sometimes things that are bad for us that get in the way of me loving God. Last time I was here, I shared my story with you that I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And the very first time I heard that there was a God who loved me, I was amazed by that. And it took me a while uh, to come to faith and to come into a personal relationship. But I want to love God because he loves me. There are no ifs, ands, or buts. There isn't anything I'm going to do today that you're going to do today that is going to make God love you more. And there is absolutely nothing you or I are going to do today that is going to make God somehow love us less. God's love and grace are extended to us. And I'm grateful for that grace that changed the trajectory in my family's life and changed the course for me. And I'm grateful for that love that it can be overwhelming. And so I want to love him back. And so Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is love God with everything you have. And the second one, he said, is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love my neighbor? I mean, like, that weird neighbor? <laughs> the one with, like, all the Halloween decorations out in their yard. Love that neighbor, that neighbor? That, that's hard, isn't it? 
And here's what Jesus is saying. If you want the door of your life to swing more freely, hang it on these two hinges. Love God and love your neighbor. In fact, look what he says. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. In other words, Jesus is saying this. Everything that God has said up to this point, every command that he's given, everything the prophets have spoken about him, every promise that's been delivered through Scripture that we find from God, everything that God has said up to this point, Jesus said, hangs on these two commands. What would happen? What would happen in our community Across uh, for us as a church here at Orland or at Homer or when New Lenox launches? What would happen in those neighborhoods if not only do we gather well in these places, but you and I were to scatter well and to get better at the two things that Jesus said mattered most, loving God and loving our neighbor? What would happen if you and I actually worked at loving our neighbors? Because we live in a time today where, where we really don't have a lot of relational connections with the people around us. Fascinating. Researchers are calling it cocooning today, that you and I are so, uh, uh, so focused inward. We plug our earphones in and we uh, get on our uh, media uh, digital devices and we, we have lots and lots of friends on Facebook, but very little depth of relationship. You know, 500,000 people a day are joining uh, Facebook. 6,000 tweets a second go out. Who cares about some of that stuff, right? I could care less what you just had for breakfast. It doesn't matter to me. If you don't have at least 348 friends on Facebook, you're not average. So you better hustle out there today and get some more people on your Facebook account. We get wired, don't we? Here's what happens. You and I come across the parking lot. Here's how we walked in this morning. Right? We're like, and you're, some of you are on your phones right now. Actually, my phone's buzzed twice since I've been up here. And I used that illustration just so I could pull it out and see who it was who was trying to reach me. <laughs> Isn't that how we're wired today? <laughs> we have more connections than we've ever had, and yet, and yet researchers are saying we have less depth of relationship than we've ever had. 48% of us would say that we are lonely or very lonely in America today. What would happen if we loved God and loved our neighbor? Because God keeps moving towards us. Look at how we find it from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God was over his creation. Then he moves closer, Exodus chapter 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. And so Moses climbs the mountain and God meets him there on that mountaintop in that cloud. And Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And God moves closer, Exodus chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now God's presence was with them in the temple and he would uh, journey with them. The priest would interact on behalf, but, but there God was, they could see his dwelling place. And then God fulfills his promise that he'd been giving from the beginning of time that he would send a redeemer, a, creator, a savior for us. And John records it this way, and the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus comes, God puts on flesh, he shows up. Eugene Peterson in the message says, and God moved into our neighborhood. 
Now we get to see God. We get to uh, interact with God. Jesus comes and he removes all the barriers. No longer do we need uh, someone else to intercede on our behalf. No longer do we need someone to somehow offer a sacrifice or to pray for us. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of that promise and our Redeemer, our Savior, becomes flesh. But then it even comes closer. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit now lives in you? And so God has moved from hovering right into our hearts and lives. In other words, where we go, God goes. What we do, God is doing. Uh, well, how God gets represented is how you and I act and respond. And so it may be that in our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, we may be the only person that somehow helps connect another uh, to God. What happens if you and I were to love God and that love were to show up, be demonstrated, flow through us? At Lightbridge, we say it this way. We want to help people discover grace, grow in grace, and live gracefully. What would happen if we were to live gracefully in our neighborhoods? What would that look like? What would it look like if you were the best neighbor your neighbor ever had? What would that look like for you? And so I want to give you some steps that, that we can take. And it starts with us getting to know our neighbors. Because here's what I learned about me. I thought I was a good neighbor. We, we kept our grass cut. Actually, Diane, my wife, kept the grass cut. She loves to mow the lawn. That, that was, was a great sign of salesmanship when you can marry up like that. She loves mowing the grass. And, and, and our kids behaved for the most part. And our dog didn't mess in your yard. And, but I was one of those neighbors that I pull in the driveway and I hit the garage door button before I get out of the car and I would wave at you. I smiled. I was nice. But what I found out was I didn't even know my neighbors. The first time uh, that I ever did an exercise, I'm going to share with you in just a second. Uh, we did it with uh, our elders and some of our staff in our kitchen and and we call this a neighboring map. And it looks like this. If you put your home on a tic-toe-toe uh, map and you put your home in the middle and you take the eight closest homes around you. So if you live in an apartment complex or condos, the eight closest around you, uh, the eight around you in a cul-de-sac. If you're out on some farm somewhere, the eight closest neighbors you have. And here's three questions we want to ask. If you were to do this map, can you tell us the names of the people who live in those eight homes? Tell us their names. Second, can you tell us something about them? She's a doctor. He's a, a contractor. He's a plumber. It doesn't count if his van says Joe's Plumbing on the side, right? That doesn't count. So they moved here from Kentucky. And then third, can you share some hurt or hope or dream they have? Is there, is there something about them that you know? And here's what I discovered about this. This was embarrassing to me. I actually call this exercise the sheet of shame. Because I didn't know my neighbors. Here's what I found out. That the people two doors down from me, I was actually calling him by the wrong name for two years. <laughs> and so we want to help you turn hey yo into hey Joe. How is it that you start to learn your neighbors? This neighboring map is actually on my refrigerator at home, and we kind of keep track, and, and I try to learn more uh, about my neighbors. In fact, here are two people that just finished doing the neighboring map. Look how depressed they are. <laughs> That's actually my granddaughter, Olivia, and our grandson, Cooper, who were born six days apart, so cousins. And uh, don't they look like they got, like, kids in a mortgage already, though? I mean, <laughs> seriously, it's like... It's a tough day for everybody. It's hard to be one. 
Let me give you four practical steps, four quick things that I think we could start doing to actually try to be the best neighbor our neighbor ever had. First is stay. Be a person who gets connected, who stays connected, gets to know your neighbors. Romans 15 says, each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. And so here's a principle I started a couple years ago. I, I, I decided that if somebody was outside, I wouldn't go inside when I came home. So when I drive home, if someone's standing outside, if they're out in their yard, they're out the mailbox, pulling their trash can in or out, I, if, if someone's outside, I don't go inside. I actually go out and and talk for it. Now, I, let me just be honest about this. There are some nights I drive down uh, my street, and I, I mean, like, look down at first to see if anyone's there, and I'll make a lap or two just so I don't, you know, it's not easy for us. But here's what I've been learning those small connections, those small steps. We call it at our place plus ones. We say to everyone, what if you just do a plus one for your neighbor? What, what if you just, if their trash can's out, pull it up the driveway for them. If, if you see their newspapers, if, if, there's some, if you see them outside, go over and say hello and let those plus ones add up for you. You're not trying to do everything, but just create some connection. And so the real challenge is, do you even know your neighbor's names? Secondly, we invite you to, Pray for your neighbors. Be a person who talks to God for the good of your neighbors. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor, the Apostle Paul said. Don't talk to your neighbors about God before you've talked to God about your neighbors. And then here's, let me give you this challenge. I'm not suggesting that you pray for your neighbors to become Christians. I, that'd be a great thing if that happens. I'm suggesting that you pray for your neighbors because you're a Christian. If you're a believer, if you're a follower, and I'm not going to assume we all are in here, but if you are, then pray for your neighbors simply because you're a Christian. And then can you pray for things specifically about them? I mean, you can only go so long saying, hey, I want to pray for the people in the greenhouse and pray for those people with that stupid dog. And I mean, there's only so much of that. Here, here's what happened to me um, uh, a few months ago. It was probably last fall, actually. I was... Uh, I was coming down uh, my street, and my neighbor John was outside. And so uh, I did what I've been trying to do. If someone's outside, I don't go inside. So I walked across the street. We chatted for about five minutes, and uh, it was about nothing. I, we just chatted about weather or work or whatever. And I got back in my house, and a few minutes later, I got a text from John. Uh, first of all, I never would have had his mobile phone in the past. And secondly, when I got the text, he said, hey, I meant to ask you if you could pray uh, for our son. He's going through some challenges right now. And here's what I know. I'd lived in that neighborhood up to that point for 14 years, and that stuff wasn't happening to me before. I was a good neighbor, I thought. Maybe you're actually the answer to the prayer you're having for your neighbor. Maybe your prayer is, God, help me to make a connection today. Give me an opportunity. Maybe it's praying, Lord, help me deal with that person that's really hard for me to deal with as a neighbor, the one I don't get along with or the one that we've had issues around. Because the truth is we all live in real neighborhoods with real people. Stay connected, pray. Let me give you the third, play. Be a person who opens your heart and your home to your neighbors. 
Be a person who opens up your heart and your home to your neighbors. The Bible tells us to practice hospitality. The Greek word for hospitality is philonexia. It's a combination of two Greek words, phileo, which is friend or brother, and nexia, which is the word for stranger or outsider. In other words, hospitality means making a stranger feel like family, feel like making an outsider feel like an insider. Now, some of you have a natural gift of hospitality. My wife, Diane, is like that. She is like, she's just bubbly and nice and, and uh, you know, she's always kind. She knows she's sensitive. She pays attention. And I, I'm just not like that. I, I don't, I don't, I don't even like people. I mean, I, I mean, really, you know, some, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, Chicago, you guys are a little more huggy than I grew up in upstate New York and we're not that huggy. And I mean, I've already like last night and this morning, again, I, uh, I'm like, like, okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> thanks. Sir. I, I don't want to get that close. <laughs> but that doesn't exempt me <laughs> from trying to make somebody who's a stranger feel like a friend. That doesn't exempt me from looking for ways uh, to extend uh, grace and hospitality. You know there are 306,000 churches in the U.S. And so if you took all the church facilities, big and small, all over the country, that's a lot of square footage of space, isn't it? Millions and millions of square footage of space. And sometimes, unfortunately, not here at Parkview, but in a lot of places, that church space kind of doesn't get used a lot except for on the weekends. And so I heard a read an article about underutilized spiritual space. But you know what I think the most underutilized spiritual space in America is? Your kitchens and living rooms and backyards. What would happen if we would actually invite our neighbors over for a meal? There are three statements in the gospel that describe why Jesus came, what he'd come to do. The first we find in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, for the Son of Man came not to serve, but to, uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He came as an example of serving. He didn't come so that we would serve him. He came to serve us, and he invites us to do the same. Luke chapter 19 gives us the second statement. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. God had come as a redeemer, a savior, one who would reconcile us back. And then the third purpose statement we find is found in Luke chapter 7. For the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I think Jesus got put to death by the Pharisees for his table manners, actually. They didn't like who he was eating with. They didn't like who he was accepting. In the first century, a meal was saying, I want to accept you. I want to invite you. I want to connect with you. I find value in you. In fact, if you look through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke tells us Jesus' story. Jesus was either at a meal, on his way to a meal, or coming from a meal. And it was always with people that the Pharisees would have said, not those people. God was the first good neighbor. What would happen if you and I were to share a meal? Maybe the most spiritual thing you'll do this week is to eat and drink. Maybe for you, the most spiritually significant thing that will happen for you is to connect over a meal. Because over a meal, there's something that happens when we connect together. And so how is it that you and I are getting better at these two things, loving God and that love being expressed as we love our neighbor? Here's the fourth thing, and it's, It's a challenging one for us. Say, be a person who shares your story of grace. 
The Apostle Paul said this, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. I hope what you catch Paul saying there is that it was actually out of sharing our lives that we get to share the gospel. All of us have had the privilege of somebody connecting with us. I'm grateful for the people who invested in me and helped me connect with God's grace in my life. And it almost always happens relationally. Now, I'm not suggesting that you make your neighbor a project, you know, that you you invite them over for dessert, and then right about the time they're starting to feel comfortable, you get out the flannel graph presentation of Jesus or your turn or burn T-shirt, you know. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about your family Bible, the one that weighs 400 pounds, whack somebody in the side of the head with it. I'm suggesting that what will happen out of connection, out of relationship, is that you'll eventually get a chance to tell your story. And your story of grace may not be one of those remarkable stories. You were down in the gutter and you weren't sure how you were going to get out and God saved you. It may be just some kind of ordinary story, but all of us have a story about what God's kindness and grace has done for us. And today, people are wanting to have spiritual conversations. I love what the great American philosopher Forrest Gump said. He said, when you go to the zoo, always take some food to feed the animals. Even though the signs on the bar say, don't feed the animals. It wasn't the animals that put those signs up. (laughs) You know, we live in a culture today where where we're being told, hey, keep your faith private. Don't share it. If you want to believe something, fine, but just don't push it on me. And I get why people say that. I live out near uh, Boulder, Colorado. We, we're, we're Boulder is 20 square miles surrounded by reality. We got every like kind of whack possible thing you can have. We have a whole anti-Christian thing going on there. Don't share your faith. Don't talk about church stuff. But that's not where the people live. With all the global terrorism that's going on, weather catastrophes, This current political circus we've got happening in the U.S., people are uncertain, fearful. And they want to talk about those uncertainties and those fears. They want to talk about what what their life really means. They want to talk about what's happening around them. And you know what? Those are actually spiritual conversations. And when you and I can simply talk about what God's done in our life or how we're anchored to hope and faith and promise, There's an opportunity for us. You know, there was a long time I thought, well, I got to be more engaging with people. So I tried to be the interesting person. I wanted to be the one who, like, you know, tell my story and here's what I've done. I've done this or have the best jokes or the best stories or connect the best. And what I've learned is this. What if I were working at being more interested, not so interesting? (laughs) Hey, tell me about your best childhood memory. What's one thing you want to do that you've never, ever been able uh, to do that you wanted to do, you hope to do something? How, how did you all meet? What was the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? People love to tell their stories, and when you and I are more interested than we are interesting, it opens up all kinds of doors. And so here's what we'd like to do this morning. Um, we'd like to invite you to take a challenge. We call it the Neighborhood Challenge. Out in the lobby, there are some fences, like the fences we have in our backyard. And, and on those fences are some cards. And on these cards, it simply is on the front saying, be a good neighbor. And on the back side are some challenges. 
And about 65% of the challenges are, are relatively easy. Walk around your neighborhood and pray or learn the names of the homes closest to you. Or this one right here is take a treat to your neighbors, cookies, flowers. Uh, I live in Colorado where pot's legal, so we can't take brownies. But um, <laughs> sorry, that just threw in. And some of the other ones are a little more difficult. Like this one, invite your neighbors over to watch a Chicago Bears game. That would be painful, wouldn't it, to, watch the, <laughs> to have to watch the Bears play. But no, invite your neighbors over for a meal. Or one of them, one of the hard ones I, I know that's on these cards is, is write an encouraging note to the neighbor you have the most conflict with. So here's what I want you to do on your way out. I want you to grab one of these cards. And I don't want you to cheat and, like, start reading the backs first, all right? Because here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced you'll get the card you need, not necessarily the card you want. And I want to invite you to take this neighboring challenge because what would happen if you were the best neighbor your neighbor ever had? What would happen if you and I would just get better at the two things that Jesus said mattered most? The problem is for us that there's just so much going on. It's hard to do all this stuff. Love God, love my neighbor. How do I do that? How do I keep all of that in balance for me? And the only way I know how to do that, if I'm going to balance this broom on my hand, first of all, I, I need to keep my eye on the, the top. If I take my eye away from it, I can't balance that. And the second way I keep some balance is this, that I, I've got to make some course corrections along the way. I've got to make some small adjustments because if I stand still... I can't keep that broom balanced. If I'm going to love God and love my neighbor, then two things are going to happen for me. I'm going to be constantly adjusting around my circumstances and situations and, and time and all of those things, and then I need to keep my eyes fixed on Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race marked before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And consider him who endured such hostility, so that, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's be a good neighbor. <laughs>